morning. Uh, a couple of announcements before we jump into our passage. Um, next week is uh, a new week. We're going to have a, a conference called Calling Beyond Covenant. Um, we're going to have on Monday two returning Covenant students, uh, Ryan Burns and Mary Catherine Keenert, are going to be with us. Um, Wednesday is going to be Henry Kastner, who's the founding partner of Sovereign's Capital. And Friday is going to be Eric Brown and Taylor Jones from Whiteboard in Chattanooga. Um, so that's why we had a special guest leading this morning. Um, slightly larger scale, uh, some of you know this, some of you may not be aware of this. Um, next year, there's going to be a restructure to the um, RADC structure on campus and in our halls. Um, instead of having individual DCs on every hall, uh, we're going to shift things up a little bit. and want to give you an idea of what this is going to look like. Um, we're still going to have RAs, obviously, but instead of having DCs on every hall, the RAs are going to put together leadership teams, teams of two to three people who will sort of function and take over the roles of the DC. Um, but those leadership teams then are uh, going to need to be trained and encouraged and um, lifted up throughout the course of the year. So we're creating a new position. It's going to be called the Student Ministry Coordinator. There are going to be four of them on campus, one per building. Um, and the Student Ministry Coordinator is essentially going to be an intern in the chapel department. It's going to be mentored and discipled and is going to be taught. Um, we're going to look at things like uh, hermeneutics. We're going to look at Bible studies, um, how to read scripture well, um, talk about prayer, both corporate and personal um, and individual. And then those uh, ministry coordinators are going to serve as um, resources for the leadership teams on campus. So if you're interested in that, if that sounds like something that, that could be interesting to you, um, you can apply on the same application as the RAs and all of the other positions. If you've already applied for RA, but that sounds interesting to you, if you would call Haley Barnfield and let her know, or you could talk to me, or you could, I guess you could go back and fill a new one out if you'd like to. Um, but it's going to be interviewing at the same time as, uh, as RA. Uh, and it is a, a work-study position, so it will be a compensated position. Um, also, on a, on a smaller note, I misplaced a black moleskin notebook somewhere on campus. Um, if you happen to find it, you, you've likely looked inside. Um, you'll be able to tell it's mine because you won't be able to read any of the writing. If you find it and you return it to me, I will gladly take you out to lunch at your uh, place of preference in Chattanooga. Or if you'd rather not watch me eat, I'll give you the money so you can go by yourself <laughs> to a place in Chattanooga. Um, it's got years of notes in it, though. So if you happen to see it, I would love you a lot if you give it back to me. So last week we looked at uh, forgiveness as the posture of forgiven people, that God calls us as forgiven people to forgive others, that that is to mark us as Christians and followers of Jesus. And today we're going to revisit uh, forgiveness, but from a slightly different angle and a slightly different passage. We're going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 18. And when you hear Matthew chapter 18 um, and we think forgiveness and repentance, um, it's the, the passage that oftentimes, you know, gets referred to, how do you confront someone in the church? How do you confront a sinning brother? Um, and we go to Matthew 18. And, and that passage uh, is there, and Jesus talks about how we are in the church to confront one another in sin. Um, but as he does that, it spurns something very personal um, and very deep for Peter. And Peter sort of launches out on, on, a, on a question. Because this talk of forgiveness and this talk of sin in the church makes Peter think of something else. It was, it was kind of accepted rabbinic policy in the first century that 
if someone sinned against you, you were supposed to forgive them three times. If they sinned three times, you were supposed to forgive them. The fourth time, though, it got a little bit cloudy, and you were no longer sort of encouraged or uh, required to forgive them. So Peter, hearing and talking to Jesus about forgiveness and what it means to be a people of forgiveness, um, how do we confront people so that they can seek repentance? Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Pushing it beyond the three times that's required. And, and the question, the question makes perfect sense, right? Uh, Peter, he wants to know, Lord, is there a limit to the forgiveness that we're supposed to extend? Is there, is there an actual like limit so that people don't take advantage of us? Is there a, a place that we can sort of put a, a finger in the ground and say, this is up to this point? And Jesus has a, a, a fantastic answer. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And 77, it's not intended to be literal. He's not saying this is the actual numeric value of how many times you're supposed to forgive someone. He's saying forgiveness is something that we are never, ever to grow weary of. It's extended as often as someone asks you to forgive them. If a person seeks forgiveness, we never weary of forgiving them. And then he tells us a parable that illustrates forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom that Jesus has brought and over which he reigns. And before we jump in there, we're going to look at this, this, this parable in this kingdom of heaven. But it's good to be reminded at times that Jesus is, is king. And that we live in a kingdom. And that you and I are servants of the king. Nick Cave in the Bad Seas has a song called There's a Kingdom and it the very, very last stanza says, there's a kingdom, there's a king, and he lives without, and he lives within. There's a kingdom, there is a king, and there is a king, and he is everything. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, that he is the king. We are in his kingdom, and he is everything. Then Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Here is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a king who wants to make right with his servants, who wants their debts to be cleared and their accounts to be, to be made right. And as a king, he can call their accounts due at any time. Whatever a servant owes to the king, the king can call it due whenever he wants to. But I think the heart here is both that he wants and rightly deserves as king what is due him. But he also doesn't want his servants to labor under the weight of debts that are owed. In Paul 8, in uh, uh, Romans 8, Paul is talking. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And to know what it's like to labor under the weight of owing someone something the weight of, of uh, forgiveness, the weight of a debt, um, it's heavy and it can weigh you down. When Sandy and I were in Boston, we had just been married a short time and an a guy with uninsured, no insurance, he ran into my wife. He, he slid down the ice and ran into our car. So 
Um, we didn't call the police. We decided we'd, we'd just work with him because he, he didn't have any insurance. So he and I ended up meeting at a Dunkin' Donuts, which is what you do in New England. Um, so we met at a Dunk, and, and we talked, and, and he, he was in similar financial shape to us. Neither of us had any money. Um, but he said, well, what if I, what if I meet with you and, and I give you like $25 a week? And I said, fantastic. I said, you know what? I'm a Christian. Would you be interested in meeting and, and we'll do Bible study? And you can give me the $25 a week. And I told him really honestly, I'm like, to be perfectly honest, the money's not the major thing. But if we could do this, that would be awesome. So we met once or twice. And I think he realized pretty quickly that, that the money was not forefront of my mind. And he just never showed up again. Um, and it was interesting to me, and I, I still feel this. If he would have come one day and just said, will you please forgive me the debt? Say, of course. But he, he lives, maybe not anymore, but he lived at least for a time of that debt upon his shoulders. And the king in this kingdom wants that debt to be cleared. He wants that weight to be lifted. So as the parable starts to unfold, it opens, seeing this matchless grace of the king. Scripture says that as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents is copious amounts of money. Um, we're talking literally between million to billion dollars, right? And the idea is the amount is, is massive. It's immeasurable. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The man can't repay the debt. So the king, fully within his rights, orders the sale of all that the man has. The amount realized for the sale, it has nothing to do, there's no way it could have paid the price. The point is this, that the man owes a debt that he can never repay to the king. He can't ever do it. The man owes the king everything by virtue of his debt. At this point, the servant falls on his knees before the king and he says to him, be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In the face of having to repay back something that he can't do, he knows he can't do it, and he's watching the king ready to take everything he has, he does the only thing he can do. He begs for mercy. It's all he has to rest on, mercy and mercy alone. And he even lies, um, probably, I think, with the best of intentions. But, oh, just be patient with me and I'll pay it all back. And the king knows he's not going to, and the man likely knows he's not going to as well. But the king, the king takes pity on him. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The king takes pity on him. And hear this, the mercy is greater than the request. Be patient with me so I can pay it back. And the king says, I'll cancel the debt and set you free so that you can go. That is deep mercy that refuses to let the man live under the weight of a debt that will rob him of joy and rob him of life. So we pause for a second there. We know that we are the servant, right? We know that we are servants with a debt that we can't pay, wholly dependent on the king's mercy. But more than just debt, and hear this, we have personally sinned against the king. When Peter asks about personal sins, how often should we forgive that person who sins against us? 
We have sinned personally against our king. There is no personal sin that stays with us. There's no private sin. There is no victimless sin. Each and every wrong that we ever do, think, say is a personal act against our king. David put voice to it, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. We owe a debt that we can't repay, and we've sinned against our king. But our king extends a mercy that makes the forgiveness of the 10,000 talents look like chump change, look like smoke in the wind. And that mercy, mercy like that should change a person. It should transform the way that a person is at their very core. But scripture says that when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So a hundred denarii, if you break it down, 10,000 talents equals a million denarii. So the man's been forgiven a million denarii. And he finds a man that owes him a hundred denarii, right? And you think that you have the beginning of a really beautiful story. He finds a man who owes him so much less than he was forgiven. So you expect what's about to happen is that the man is going to extend grace to his fellow servant because of the grace that's been extended to him. It's changed him, right? But that's not what happens. Hear the the violence in this. He grabs the man by the throat and begins to choke him. And this was actually like a thing, right? So in the ancient Near East, if someone owed you a debt, you could grab them by the throat so they wouldn't run away. And if they didn't pay you, you like this. <laughs> um, if, 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 uh, it, so you couldn't run away. And if you couldn't pay right then, they are jailed. They go to jail, right? So that's what the man does. He grabs him, begins to choke him. And it's violent and awful. And he says, pay back what you owe me, he demands. So, so much for the forgiven being forgiving. Not the story that we would expect. When that happens, his fellow servant, though, falls to his knees and begs him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. And now watch how it unfolds, right? The king and his servant, and the king goes to take what's due him, right? But the servant falls on his knees before the king and begs for patience that he might repay back a debt that he could never pay. Now, it's not king-servant, it's servant and fellow-servant. Brothers, right? And he finds him and says, you need to repay back the debt that you owe me. But it's a debt that he actually can pay back. A hundred denarii. And the man falls on the same hope that the other man had. He falls on mercy. So he gets down on his knees. Forgive me. Be patient. Give me an opportunity to pay it back. Scripture says, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into, pit, into prison until he could pay the debt. How absurd for one forgiven so much to refuse to forgive so little. But look at how quickly that brings things into relief. If the man had forgiven him, it would have been a good story, right? But when the man doesn't forgive him, it pops out how absolutely and utterly ridiculous and absurd it is to see one person who's been forgiven so much not be willing to offer that same mercy to someone who's asking for so little. And again, we know that we are the forgiven servant. How ridiculous to think that we, when offended by others, would not extend to others the same grace that our king has extended to us. Especially knowing that there's no way that any person 
could owe us as much as we owe the king. John Stott, I think I read this last week, but it's such a beautiful quote. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had taken place. And this type of injustice, the type of behavior that the man showed, is, is, it's utterly despicable. Everything in us rises against us because we see how wrong it is. So the master, <coughs> the king, calls the servant back in and he says, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to, <coughs> because of the mercy you asked for. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. I had mercy on you. How could you not extend that same mercy to your fellow servant? And then the king, he reinstates his debt, punishes him until he can pay it back. It's not ever going to happen. The forgiven must forgive. Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom, the kingdom that he ushered in, the kingdom that he currently reigns over from his throne at the right hand of God. But this is kind of cool. At this point, remember, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, but he hasn't yet suffered the cross. He hasn't ascended. The Holy Spirit has not come yet to indwell believers, right? I think as you look at this and you, you try to figure out what's going on here, I think viewed from our context, understanding this passage, the point we have to ask, is it possible for any true disciple to ever act as this servant did? Is it possible for one who is characterized by this lack of forgiveness to be truly forgiven? If we have been forgiven our offense and our sins against God, is it possible that our hearts as believers and followers of Jesus, would not extend that same forgiveness to those who seek it from us. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. And now we get down to the core of it. You must forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's not an intellectual act. Forgiveness is not something that takes place in the mind. Forgiveness is something that takes place in the heart. And it's important to remember that forgiveness and repentance are sacred things. They require wisdom. They require examination. If we forgive any um, offense lightly or unjudiciously, we um, run the risk of devaluing the forgiveness that God has extended to us. When we're suspicious of authenticity of one seeking forgiveness, it's not wrong to be cautious, to be observant of future behavior. We do not want to cheapen the work of the Spirit of God. But even further, the heart of what's happening here is something that I think we could miss. We could miss the real question. And so oftentimes, isn't that the case? that the real issue is the issue that sits underneath the issue that we think we're dealing with, right? It's that thing that sits under the surface. 
Um, last week we talked about electronics in chapel um, and, and this rule that if, if someone on staff sees you with your phone out, the chapel credit will be taken away. And I know a number of people have, have sort of had issue with that. Um, and that's an issue, but there's an issue that sits beneath that issue. What is it that makes a person chafe at that? What's actually going on in the heart that would make a person chafe at that rule, right? There's always something going on under the surface. And I think that's the thing we don't want to miss here. What is the real issue under Peter's question? It's the issue that Jesus' answer drives us to. Like so often, Peter asks, what do we have to do? Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Give me the parameters. Give me the list. I want an answer. When I became a Christian in college, I wanted to know the rules. I wanted to know what do I do, what do I not do. I wanted to know what words can I say and what words can I not say. I was walking into literally a foreign culture. So I needed to know how to behave in this foreign culture. What music can I listen to and not listen to? I sold, rebought, sold, rebought more times than I can count Red Hot Chili Peppers CDs, right? I'm convicted. I need to sell all my music. Wait, that's awesome music. Buy it. So that went back and forth. But, but what do we do? I, I wanted to know what are the things that are, are allowable, permissible? How do you interact with members of the opposite sex? Um, which I learned is a whole different ballgame in Christian college world. Um, what am I supposed to do? versus who am I supposed to be? The focus on what we do versus the focus on who we are. What do we do as Christians? I can tell you that. We forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. But don't miss who we are supposed to be. Forgiveness is not a thing. It's not a thing that we do, but it's instead a way that we are. It's a posture and a mark of the followers of Jesus. We are supposed to be people of mercy and grace, ready to forgive early and often. Thank you, John Wiley. If that is who we are, it will impact everything in our lives. It is a posture of life. But if forgiveness is going to be a posture of our lives, it has to be based on gratitude. We have to be a people of gratitude. We have to grasp how deeply forgiven we are and be grateful for it. We need to see our sin clearly and understand how much the king has paid for our ransom. We have to live in a posture of gratitude to be people of forgiveness. And with gratitude, gratitude brings humility. It brings compassion. It brings Christ-likeness. It allows us to look upon one another with grateful, humble hearts and not haughty, prideful hearts. It allows us to look at other people's sin and know how much worse ours is against God. It allows us to have a posture of forgiveness. We saw ourselves in the servant in the parable as ourselves as the servant in the parable. But we can only be grateful when we see the king properly, right? We have to understand who the king is. The king who desires to settle our account, to forgive our sins, 
the call, who called us to be people of forgiveness based on gratitude. And anytime we talk about forgiveness, I want to be really clear about this. Forgiveness is hard. And when you talk about people forgiving you or you forgiving people, it's something we don't want to overlook. And here's the reality. Forgiveness is never deserved. No one ever deserves to be forgiven by you. Likewise, you don't ever deserve to be forgiven by another. You hear that? Forgiveness is never, ever deserved. It is always an act of grace, an act that reflects the glory of God, an act that reflects the king who has mercy on us. Friends, we forgive not because we owe it to anyone. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And when we forgive, we honor and glorify and reflect the king who has forgiven us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you call us to hard truths, but truths that give us life, truths that we would have no other way. Father, change our hearts, change our minds, transform us to be like you. Let us be people of gratitude, people of grace and mercy, and people of forgiveness. Lord, help us to extend forgiveness as you have extended it to us, and so reflect your glory and your majesty, we pray. In your Son, our Savior Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.